The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Hard to Believe, Answering Common Objections to Christianity. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 22. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is the word of the Lord. Father, once again we come before you with grateful hearts, um, knowing For some of us, knowing what you've done, um, we worship you as creator, as Lord, as king, as the son of man who put on flesh and lived the perfect life and died the death that we deserve. And and we praise you and worship you as as that. And we thank you, Father, that in your um, design for us, that you have made us people who crave truth, that we do not like to be wrong. There is a discontentment with being wrong And so you have put us on a hunt for truth. And this morning, I pray for those of us who are coming looking for truth or or for those of us looking to be sort of solidified in what we understand to be true, would you help us and accompany accompany us in that endeavor? And Father, I pray that you would um, help me to think clearly and speak articulately this morning. Um, I pray, Father, that your spirit would be at at work um, through these words, even apart from my words, knowing that you're at work. Father, I know that as we dive into this difficult topic, um, that nothing I say can change someone's heart that's completely upon your spirit. And so we ask for your spirit to come and move, um, move in us, move through us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Um, Typically, we preach verse by verse, um, chapter by chapter through books of the entire Bible, Um, and we're not going to do that today. Actually, we're not going to do that for the next six weeks. What we're doing is we're starting a new sermon series called Hard to Believe, and in this sermon series, we're going to take six weeks to to dialogue, if you will, I guess. I don't know if you call this a dialogue because I'm the only one with a microphone, but talk about and think through some of the biggest questions and doubts posed to Christianity, Um, and so... This, this series has been um, sort of inspired, well, not sort of, but pretty, pretty, much, pretty well inspired by uh, the New York Times bestseller, The Reason for God. I don't know if we've got a slide for that, but it, it's a book that was written about 10 years ago by Pastor Tim Keller. 
Um, and so we are going to take a lot of his thoughts and sort of work through those together. We're not going to, you know, I'm not reading the book for you up here, but, but we're going to think through some of the arguments that he's putting forward. And so if some of you may have already read this, and so a lot of this might sound familiar. If you haven't read this, I highly recommend p- picking up this book. This is very easy to read, um, and you can kind of follow along with us as we move through all six of these questions. Um, I realize with this series, we're talking about doubts and questions. For me, this has been a challenge um, because typically when I preach a sermon, I, I go to the Bible and I go deeper and deeper and deeper into the Bible. Now with this series, we're really looking at two different worldviews. We're looking at what the Bible has to say. So in that sense, I, my job stays the same. I go to the Bible. I go deeper, deeper, deeper in the Bible. But now there's this sort of new thing that we've got to look at, this different worldview. And, and, and so I've had to do a lot of research to sort of understand because, honestly, some, these beliefs are not the beliefs that I hold. So I've got to work through those, and I don't want to do justice to those. I don't want to throw up these straw man arguments and just bat them down and make myself feel good. And so I've had to do a lot of research. And so in light of that, I want to put a disclaimer here, that anything that might sound remotely smart probably isn't my original thought, Okay that I've done a lot of research, and I'm going to do my best to quote these people. And as I quote them, I hope, if this is something that, that brings up questions for you or piques an interest, that you see that there are ample resources for you to kind of investigate for yourself. And so I'm going to do my best to quote those, um, and I hope that it encourages you to do your own research. Um, but the purpose of this series is really twofold. First of all, um, the first purpose is that we want to address those with their own doubts and, and skepticisms if that's a thing, Um, those who are skeptics, those people who are looking for truth, right? So that's that's the first purpose. We want to answer some of those big questions. And the second purpose of the series is that we want to equip the missionaries of God, God's people, to be able to dialogue with nonbelievers and skeptics along the lines of these topics as well. So if you're thinking, oh, you know, I, I don't really ask these questions, well, the chances are someone in your life does, And so this might be something that you just need to listen to and sort of pick up on some of these things, these arguments that I'm putting forward, and kind of keep that in your pocket for those missional uh, conversations that you might have with your friends and neighbors and coworkers and such. So I just wanted to let you know. For me, it helps. I'm a big picture guy. I like to know what, what the goal of this is. And so that really is our goal. So as you're listening, I hope that you kind of listen through that lens. Um, And so as we dive into these doubts and these questions, what I first want to do is I want to clear up that doubt itself is not a bad thing. Like doubt is part of the process of coming to faith, right? If we look through the Bible, some of the closest, the people who were closest to Jesus had doubts, right? We know Thomas, doubting Thomas, he's title is that in, in the New Testament, as, as Jesus has been resurrected and he appears again, he has doubts. It's not until he puts his fingers in the holes where the nails went through Jesus' hands that he, he starts to sort of see what's going on. Even, even the disciples in the midst of Jesus' ministry, while they're out on the boat, Jesus addresses them, ye of little faith. Right? And so doubt, if, if doubt can be in the lives of people who could literally put their fingers on Jesus, who could literally dialogue with the Son of God, we shouldn't be surprised when we come across our own doubts. And so I just want to encourage you, don't be afraid of doubt. Lean into doubt. Search for truth. Look for answers. And in that, God will work. So in light of this, if doubt isn't bad, if doubt is part of the process, we need to look at doubt 
in sort of a new way. So first, I want to address those of you who believe the Christian faith, who are inclined to say, yes, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I believe God's word is true. And I want to say to you that working through doubts is essential for a strong faith. Keller, Tim Keller says, a faith without some doubts is like a body without antibodies. See, the, the antibodies in your body serve as a defense system. So when bacteria or viruses come in and penetrate your immune system, they fight against us. They, they prevent your body from absolutely collapsing. The same is true of our own doubts. Right? When we've looked in the face of doubt, when we've wrestled through some of the hard questions, it strengthens our faith. It, it bolsters our spiritual immune system. So that way, right, in the midst of crisis or when one of these questions blows up in a really personal way, our faith doesn't just fall apart like a, a Jenga tower. Right? So these doubts are essential for strengthening our faith. So we need to we need to listen to our own doubts. We need to ponder them. We need to think through them critically. It's no longer viable for you to, to, to inherit your parents' faith or, or even the, the faith of your spouse. It is time for you to look honestly in the face of your doubts and work through those questions. And like I said, it's when we do that, our faith strengthens and it'll, our faith will allow us to be sustained through adversity. And in addition to stronger faith, what happens is something... you. You become more humble, right? The world needs more humble people. And when you look in the face of your doubts, one of the things that happens is you become more humble because it forces you to be respectful and understand other people's thoughts and ideas. Now, I want to address those in the room who aren't necessarily religious, those who maybe are on the, on the, spect, uh, on the skeptic end of the spectrum. I hope that you look at doubt differently as well. Keller says, all doubts, however skeptical and cynical they may seem, are really a set of alternate beliefs. And before you say, wait, 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 I don't, I don't believe things. I look at truth. I look at facts. Now, to be consistent with that statement, what we have to do is understand what exactly is a fact. Fact is either A, something that is universally observable by all people, right? Like, uh, I'm a handsome Man, right? That would be a fact. Well, maybe not. A bit more, I'm wearing a shirt. That would be actually a fact. Uh, or B, if it's not observably, um, observable by everyone, then, then a fact needs to be uh, proven, absolutely proven by science. For example, water boils at a certain temperature. That is a scientific fact. Okay, and so that's what facts are. Either something that's observable by everybody, everything or provable, not just a theory, but provable by science, and if it can't be proved by either a that, that observable or by scientific fact or, or process, then we have what we have here is a belief or an act of faith. Therefore, listen to this: that you cannot doubt one belief except from the position of another belief. So, if you're saying, "Hey, I look at the facts, I doubt Christianity," I don't think it, the only way you can do that is if you do it from to, to doubt. Christian faith is to doubt it from a, a different belief. See, statements like, I don't believe there is a God, and if there was a God, it isn't the God of the Bible. This is a belief. To doubt Christianity rightly and fairly, you must discern the alternate belief beneath your doubts and ask the questions why. And so one of the things that I like, I think is important 
when, when dialoguing with Christians and non-Christians. There's always, non-Christians want to see Christians argue not from the point of biblical inerrancy. They, they want to use logic and reason. Let's process through this fairly. Now, I want to argue that, that we as Christians need to call skeptics to argue the same way. That they need to be, to be good and consistent as a skeptic means that they also must doubt their doubts. They have to see their position as a belief as well. And so if you don't do that as a skeptic, if you don't do that, then you are just as guilty of the blind faith that many Christians are accused of. So to avoid this pitfall of the blind faith that both camps are very capable of making, what I want for us to do this morning is I want us to reason together. And honestly, this is, I feel like the first 40 minutes of this is probably lecture and the last 10 minutes of this is sermon. And so I, I, wanna, I want us to reason together. I'm going to present a lot of arguments and I, and I hope to show them in a, in a clearly understandable way. They're very complex um, and a lot of people have written several, probably thousands of books on some of these matters that we're diving into. Um, but I want us to reason together. And so to reason, to reason is to do this. It's, it's for the power of the mind to think, understand, and form judgments by a process of logic. So I, at the beginning of this talk, I'm not, I'm not going to pull out a bunch of Bible verses and say, hey, this is how we know this is true. I want to use logic. In fact, I think my, my quote ratio, I've got a lot of quotes this morning. I'm pretty sure my quote ratio is 12 to 1 where I've, for every one quote from a Christian, I probably have 12 quotes from atheists. And so I want us to think through what people are saying. I, and to do this, it requires us to look, from, look at things from another person's perspective and hear it out before we make object, objections. So to do this well, there's some, some rules, right? If you're a Christian, there's some rules that we should put on dialogues like this. First of all, we need to do this respectfully. We, we don't come in there with a swagger. Right, one of our songs, I have no boast in wisdom. We don't walk into conversations like this with a swagger. We come with humility and respect for other people. Right? These are people who are, who are opposing us and maybe thoughts that are, are also made in the image of God. And so they are due respect. But we also want to do it with charity. There are so many debates online. If you go on YouTube, there's all kinds of debates, Christians, non-Christians debating, and it's uncharitable, right? People are hostile towards one another. They argue. They make personal attacks. They're not arguing from ideas. They're letting emotion sort of stir them, and it doesn't go well. And so if we're going to actually make progress in these discussions, we need to do it with respect and charity for other people's viewpoints, now, it doesn't mean we accept them or, or say, yes, that's true. It means that we listen before we make objections. See, one of the things that happens in those debates is that people create strawman arguments or, or they resort to one-upsmanship, right, of insults. And, and so we cannot do that if we want to move this discussion forward. Now, these topics that we're going to hit over the next six weeks, and, and there's more topics beyond this, these are important topics for us to wrestle through. Because if what Christians believe is true, if, if what Christians believe about the Bible is true, then eternity rides on it. Right? And so we need to do it with respect and charity for one another. And so the, the format of this morning, it's not a debate. I'm the only one with a microphone, so it's not a debate. But I intend to represent the opposing view as charitably as I know how. I want to avoid straw man arguments. And I will tell you up front that I'm not an expert in this, but over the last two weeks I have listened to, I've read lots of experts and leading thinkers whose opinion is very different than mine. And so 
I want to represent that well. But the reality is here that I, in this 45, 55 minutes that I have, I cannot put all of the arguments forward and argue them all well. So there's things that I have to omit by intention and some that I'll probably have to omit unintentionally. Um, So I ask for a little bit of grace on my part as we work through this, but what I want to do is put forth the best, the most compelling arguments and work through those. And so today's objection that we're looking at is, hasn't science disproved Christianity? Now, based on scientific discovery, right, people say, based on scientific discovery, hasn't Christianity been, been debunked? Hasn't science proven that God is irrelevant? Now, in a Barna poll that just came out last year, one in three millennials think that the church is anti-science. One in four millennials say that the church is anti-intellect. 44%, listen to this, 44% of all Americans qualify as post-Christian based on 15 different criteria. That means that 40, 44%, almost 45% of, of the population in America is a functional skeptic. And so this is a significant question that we have to ask. This is a significant question that, does, that, that demands significant attention. And so we're going to jump into this conversation. And as we do, I want you to realize that this is this is a dialogue that has a tumultuous, very rocky history. I can't say that word right. Historically, there has been a slowness of the church to accept definitive scientific discovery. And most people will point back to Galileo back in 1633 when Galileo discovered that the earth actually revolves around the sun, not the sun revolving around the earth. And for that, for his discovery, the church accused him of heresy and excommunicated him. And so at that point, there was sort of this rift caused, and it wasn't until 2000, the year 2000, when former Pope John Paul issued a formal apology for how Galileo was treated in that. So there has been this rift between the church and science where the church has been slow to accept what science has discovered as fact. And because of that, science has sort of stiff-armed the church and said, hey, you guys have nothing to offer us. We'll go do our own thing. So during the 19th century, right on the heels of the Enlightenment, something called the conflict thesis arose. And this basically is saying that there's a conflict between religious faith of, of, any, of any religion and science, that the two are not compatible. And one of the guys that was really a, a, a proponent that forced this theory or this thesis um, down through the public was a guy by the name of John William Draper. He's one of the most influential scientists of this time who was pushing this agenda. And he says this, The history of science is not a mere record of isolated discoveries. It is a narrative of the conflict of two contending powers. One, the expansive force of the human intellect on one side, and the compression arising from traditional faith and human interests on the other. So he basically pits pits intellect and faith against each other. And so for the first time in history, Draper suggests that science and faith are not compatible. And this kind of grew in popularity as time went on until the 20th century. And it was in the 20th century where a vast majority of historians and scientists loosened their position on this conflict thesis. And by 1970, the vast majority of scientists, uh, researchers, historians actually denounced this conflict thesis and said, you know what, this, is a, this issue is too complex to just say one, not the other. And so what happened was uh, David Wilson, for the first time, sort of noted this um, in two, two very 
scholarly works that denounced the, the conflict thesis and presented this complexity model. Um, and if you want one of those books, I'll tell you later. But um, rather, so in this time, what's being said is rather than it being one or the other, rather than intellect or, or faith, they're saying, you know, these things actually can work together. Right? They're, they're not, one does not mean not the other. And so Dr. Gary Fernan, who's an atheist from Oregon State University, says that the conflict thesis was far too simple for such a complex issue. And this is what he said. Studies have shown that Christianity specifically has often nurtured and encouraged scientific endeavor, while at other times the two have coexisted without either tension or attempts at harmonization. He's saying here that, that they don't exist in separate realities. They can actually be held together. Now, like I said, this is the view of most modern scientific thinkers. They see this, this problem as quite a complex problem, but there are still a very vocal group of scientists that don't buy it. They still hold to the conflict thesis, right? Um, for example, Dr. Stephen Hawking, he's probably one of the most famous scientists who push this agenda. And what he says here is that there's a fundamental, fundamental difference between religion, which is based on authority, and science, which is based on observation and reason. He says science will win because it works. He sees it as a competition between religion and intellect. And others like, uh, like in, in the camp of Stephen Hawking, like uh, Dr. Stephen Weinberg from Texas, who's also, also an atheist, he says that it's possible the only possible way that science and religion can coexist is when scientists let their faith bias their research. So he's saying that whatever scientific discoveries that say uh, that Christianity is plausible under scientific discovery, he's saying, well, the only way that's plausible is because it was a Christian scientist who let his faith bias his work. Leading thinkers like Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, Richard Dawkins, and other associations associated with this movement of new atheism, they assume science, specifically evolutionary science, makes belief in God unnecessary and obsolete. Dawkins argues that you cannot be an intelligent scientist and still hold to a religious belief. Now the question is here, something, someone as smart as Dawkins, right? This guy's a genius. Is he right? Is there... Is there no way for science and, and religion to be compatible? Now, there's a, a, a wide range of topics that Christians and non-Christians um, of belief that, that get put under scrutiny when coming to the argument of, is it scientifically viable? And what I want to do this morning is briefly, and I mean briefly, we've got to move quick, uh, is focus on creation, evolution, and miracles. No big deal, right? <laughs> Creation, evolution, and miracles. And I want to do my best, like I said, to represent each argument fairly and present the most compelling views. And then I want to present a, a rational argument against those. So most scientists, if, if we start looking into the creation, the cause of the universe, most scientists, most theorists agree that the universe was created by the Big Bang. And, and, and the saying or, or the idea basically goes like this, that the universe began when nothing exploded into everything, right? That's, that's the concept of the Big Bang. And, and this is sort of a, a reductionistic way to look at it. Like I said, I've got limited time. Um, but there are three important components to this. First, that the, that the universe had a beginning. 
Second, there was a, an explosion that started it all. And third, that from nothing came everything. So let's look at the first, first piece of this argument. The universe had a beginning. Now, what, what they say here is that our universe had an origin, that, it, that our universe is not an infinitely past universe, but there was a moment in time where there was nothing and then something began. Alexander Villikin, uh, he's a director of the Institute of Cosmology and the professor of evolutionary science at Tufts University, leading thinker on this theory. He says that in no scenario can there be a past eternal. All the evidence we have says that the universe had a beginning. Okay, so that's the first point, that there is no infinite past universe, that there was a beginning. Secondly, that there was an explosion of sorts at the beginning, hence the name The, the Big Bang. And, and scientists believe that this happened 13.7, I believe, 13.7 billion years ago. And Stephen Hawking explains that because of a cosmic explosion, everything in existence is expanding exponentially in every direction, from an infinitely small, so here's the origin of it, an infinitely small, hot, dense point creating a cosmos filled with energy and matter. So he's saying from this one point, and, and everything continues to expand, right? They, scientists, uh, astronomers say that, that the universe is expanding moment by moment. Now, the reason that we know this is because years ago, um, the, the Hubble telescope was thrown up in the air, right? And, and from this telescope, we notice colors, the frequency of colors explaining how the universe is, is expanding, that galaxies are moving further and further apart from each other. Right? So that's the second scientific piece of this argument. And third, that everything came from nothing. So... Richard Dawkins says that, that the cosmos that is now filled with energy and matter was once nothing. And what I mean by nothing is I mean nothing. It's hard to even think of this because even when I say there's nothing in my hands right now, there's still time, space, there's probably dust particles, matter of some sort here. When we say nothing, absolutely nothing. John Barrow, he's a, a theoretical physicist. He says, at this singularity, this one moment in time, space and time came into existence. So, so before this point, time, space, matter, not a thing. He says, literally nothing existed before this one moment in time. So if the universe originated at such a singularity at this moment, we could truly have a creation ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. Now, when we look at these arguments from, if you have a biblically informed worldview, this really isn't too troubling. But when we look at the scientific claims that they, that they make, because it's not just scientific claims, what they're putting forward is a scientific worldview, a scientific belief system. And what happens and when they take these three pieces, it leads to the conclusion that there is not a God responsible for this. Lawrence Krauss, um, Richard Dawkins, Stephen Hawking, and on and on say that the reason for the universe, the only reason for the universe is this Big Bang and not God. But the one thing that this theory lacks 
is a cause for the Big Bang, right? Who started? How did the Big Bang happen? See, we know by personal experience, random, unwarranted, uncaused explosions don't happen. I was sitting on my deck last night, and I hear these bangs off in the distance. It's 4th of July season, right? I don't know if your neighborhood's like this, but mine's like the month before, and the month after is the 4th of July. And so fireworks are going off all the time. Somebody had to ignite those fireworks. Those fireworks don't just start on them by themselves. And so it's sort of by personal experience, by, by reason, by rationality, that we can say, hey, in order for something to happen, there needs to be an effect. In order for a cause, this is the causal principle that we'll talk about later on. In order for an effect to happen, a cause must be present. So this is one area where this this belief, uh, the Big Bang as a worldview, not just scientific thought, is, is incomplete, right? Who is it that caused the bang? What is it that caused the bang? And the response to this is usually, there's a lot of different arguments. Some, some will say, and these are intelligent people who will say, an alien, like, from a different reality came and somehow created this. Um, but, but probably the most plausible argument is they say that occasionally, in theory, that matter can spontaneously come into existence. Okay, this sounds strange, but this is quantum mechanics. It's true that, that matter can spontaneously come into ex- to existence. So if two things were to happen to be at the same place at the same time, and they were to affect each other differently, that they could have some sort of reaction. Now, to be fair... Right? This is a theory that, that can be tested in quantum mechanics. It can, can actually be shown that it's plausible. But to be fair, this theory, it only accounts for single particles. Not, it's not like a car can just appear out of nowhere. Right? Single particles appearing in, in space and time at the same time. So for in order for this theory to work, space and time must be present and matter can inject itself. All right, we might get kind of geeky here, but I like this stuff. So in order for this theory, right, so this, the only way this theory works is if it happens in a vacuum. But the thing is, a vacuum, creating a vacuum in absence of something is different than ex nihilo, which is out of nothing. See, in a vacuum, there is still space and time. There may not be matter present, but there's still space and time. And so for this theory to be true, space and time must be present. And so in a way, that that sort of deflates that argument because ex nihilo is completely different than a vacuum, right? Space and time still exist. And so by the time you trace science's explanation of the cause of the Big Bang, you'll eventually stall out because you get to this argument, what started it? And many educated Christians would, for the most part, accept these, that this Big Bang, at least as a scientific discovery, could very well be plausible. But science still lacks to explain the cause of the Big Bang. Now, excuse me, um, I've got a slide here. Um, William Lane Craig is a Christian apologist, and he is probably the leading thinker when it comes to debating, specifically uh, the creation of the universe, evolution, um, things of that nature, just supernatural. He is a brilliant guy. And one of the arguments that he uses is called the Kalam Cosmological Argument, or KCA. 
And what this argument does, it exploits where scientists lack an explanation for the Big Bang. Now, Martin, Mike, uh, Michael Martin, guy with two first names, um, Michael Martin is an atheist philosopher who is an opponent of, of uh, Dr. Craig. And he says that among, uh, that this, the, the, the Kalam cosmological argument is among the most sophisticated and well-argued uh, in contemporary theological philosophy. And the interesting thing about this argument, right, is that it comes from a Muslim, 12th century Muslim theologian named Al-Ghazail. I don't know how to say that. Um, and so what happened here in, in his time, in the 12th century, he was sensing that, that Greek um, philosophy was ignoring, um, ignoring and denying God as a creator. And so he, can't, he created this three-step argument to refute uh, uh, their arguments for no God. And so what, this is how the argument goes, that whatever begins, whatever begins to exist has a cause of its beginning. Number two, the universe began to exist. Therefore, number three, the universe has a cause. Now let's dig in here. The first one, whatever begins to exist has a cause of its beginning. Now this is rational intuition. This is something that, that logically we can see, Right? Babies don't just appear. There's a cause to that. Um, to think otherwise would be worse than magic, right? Because in magic, at least you have a hat and a, and a magician that pulls something out, and therefore it's a little bit better. But to believe that something could just spontaneously begin is not logical in accordance to our common experience. Now, this also relies heavily on the causal principle, that if there's an effect, that there's a cause. They say that this is the first principle of science. Right? This is why people study science like, like chemical reactions, because there's a cause, therefore an effect. Now, so we can see that rationally, right? Common experience, rationally see that. Now, two... Second part of the argument, the universe began to exist. Now, this is, he's saying that the, the universe is not eternal. We've already talked about this, that in fact, the scholars, the atheists who, who scientifically have done research have proven that the, that the universe had an origin, that there was a beginning. So I don't have to work too hard to, uh, to prove that. Um, and, and this view that Alexander Villikin, um, the guy that I quoted earlier, is widely accepted. Accepted by all leading thinkers, scientific thinkers in this matter, but it's also supported by the second law of thermodynamics that if that if the universe were eternal, it would have run out of energy by now. So again, another scientific reason here to see that the universe began to exist. And three, therefore, because because whatever begin, begins to exist has a cause of its beginning. And because the universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. Now, the, the, the Kalam cosmological argument, without even picking up the Bible, points to the necessity of a cause for the Big Bang. And, and Aristotle, who is not a Christian at all, he suggested way back that the unmoved mover had something to do with the ignition of the Big Bang, or as modern theologians say, the uncreated creator. 
But from what we know about the universe, we can deduct that the uncaused causer must be superior to that which is created, that he must be beyond the space-time continuum, beyond the space-time universe. This means that he must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused, and immensely powerful, right? Or in other words, what Christians would, when we look at that list, we say, that's God. So the, the, the Kalam cosmological argument shows us that it's more probable, right, using silence language, it's more probable that God does exist using these scientific arguments than it is that God doesn't exist. But here's the thing. This argument also shows us pieces, or at least hints at or points us towards pieces of what this uncaused causer must be like. And it sets us on a path toward discovering what God is or who God is or what he's like. So that's the first argument. Now, the second argument, you say, okay, okay, I'm following along there with you, but what about uh, evolution? Right? Because evolution, we're told, has been, has been widely popularized as fact. Now, one thing, when, when we talk about evolution, one thing that we need to remember is that the evolution is sort of an accordion word, that it opens um, and contracts, expands and contracts to sort of fit different conversations. Um, Francisco Ayala, these guys have tough names. He's an evolutionary biologist. Um, he, he says that evolution can be described or can mean three different things. The first is this, that present-day organisms are descended from organisms that lived earlier with modifications. Second, that biological complexity is to be explained through genetic mutation and natural selection. So that's the natural selection piece. And third, he says, evolution can be, can be used as saying it's the reconstruction of an evolutionary tree of life that would show all of the branches going back to some primordial ancestor in the past. So basically, when we look at these three things, one, we can say, is scientifically proven, that there are species that over time have changed and evolved in a micro sense, that they've adapted to their settings, adapted to their surroundings, and changed in that way. Now, now, two and three, arguments two and three, would point more towards Darwin's theory of evolution, that there's a, a process of natural selection, and that all of evolution goes back to a single um, organism that, that existed sort of at the beginning of time. So when people say that evolution is a fact, really what they're speaking of is in terms of that first one, right? This micro-horizontal evolution. And, and what's said by, by scholars, Francisco Ayala says that numbers two and three, this sort of macro-evolutionary thing, um, they're of tremendous dispute among the scientific community. And there's much that we don't know about it. So therefore, there's ongoing research. So there's nothing definitive about those two and three pieces. At this point, it's only theory. So simply put, Darwin's version of evolution is only a theory at this point, not a fact. But here's the thing. If it were, if, if somehow the scientific community could say, this is how we can prove it as fact, Christianity will still be left unthreatened. Let me tell you why. Because the scientific and Christianity relationship not only hinges on scientific discovery, but on the, the interpretation of certain scriptures 
um, from the Bible. Now, if you were with us yesterday at the Bible workshop, um, we talked about how the Bible has multiple genres within it. So it's one book, but within the book, it's made up of a bunch of different books, and each book has its own sort of literary genre. There is historical narrative, um, which is like Exodus, um, has a lot of historical narrative. There's law, which is also in the book of Exodus that we just finished up. There's wisdom, poetry, epistles, which are letters to a certain people, a certain place at a certain time. And all of this different literature is read differently. It's interpreted differently. So you don't In a sense, it is okay for Christians to say that you do not pick up the Bible and you do not read it all literally, right? Poetry is not literal. Uh, I'll pass on that. I was going to, no. So because there are different genres within Scripture, We have to read Scripture differently. Now, there's difficulty here because there are some points where books of the Bible sort of weave in and out of different literary genres. For example, Exodus was one of those. Historical narrative, um, there's poems, there's a song in Exodus, and there's even law. So there's a a difficulty for scholars when you look at Scripture of how how to read or how to interpret a book given its literary genre. Now, there are other passages in Scripture that's very difficult to pinpoint what sort of genre it is. For example, Genesis 1 and 2. Now, some people take Genesis 1 and 2 as a very literal account of what God did to create the universe. In that case, if we take the Bible literally, there are things um, about science and the Big Bang that we would be resistant to agree upon. Now, what I want to suggest, and this is my viewpoint, is that Genesis 1 and 2, specifically Genesis 1, is a, is a genre of poetry. It's a song. It's a, it's, a, it's a poem explaining what God had, has done and the meaning of it, while Genesis 2 sort of gives a more detailed expansion on what it is that actually happened. Right, you can see how how this Genesis one and two might relate to each other this way because there's other places in Scripture that do this as well. Exodus fourteen and fifteen do this. Judges four and five do the same thing, where there's a poem and then there's a detailed explanation. And so, how we can look at Genesis one and two is Genesis one is a song about the wonder and meaning of creation. Genesis two gives an account of how this all happened. So, if this is the case. If evolution were ever proved to be fact, then the Bible, if we look at it as poetry, as Genesis 1 as poetry and Genesis 2 as more detailed expansion on what God actually did, the theory of evolution, the, the biological evolutionary discovery would not conflict with the biblical account of creation. Now, to help us understand this, David Atkinson, um, he's a theologian, an expert in the book of Genesis, this is what he says. I think I've got to, you can follow along here with me. He says, if evolution, and he's talking about biological evolution, not evolution as a worldview. If biological evolution is elevated to the status of a worldview of the way things are, then there is a direct conflict with biblical faith. But if evolution remains at the level of scientific 
biological hypothesis, it would seem that there is little reason for conflict between the implications of the Christian belief in the creator and the scientific explorations of the way which, at the level of biology, God has gone about his creating processes. So what he's suggesting here is that if if science were to come out and say, hey, this is how we can prove biological evolution, he says, you know what? But that wouldn't conflict with anything the Bible says because what we know about God, he's omnipotent, he's above all, he is powerful, he can create a process, right? The language of Genesis is that he formed the world, he made the world. But here's the thing. It says the same thing in the Psalms about God forming a child inside someone's womb. Right? God doesn't actually sit there and put piece by piece by piece by piece while a child is in the womb. God uses a process, a human biological process in which uh, an infant is formed in the womb. So what he's saying here is that it is very possible if evolution, the, the, the biological evolution does exist, that God made, guided, and oversaw the process which led to existence. Right? And I realize that this might open up way more questions than I have time to answer, but I'll leave it out like that. That the Bible and science, when it comes to biological evolution, do not conflict depending on how you interpret Scripture. Now, to move on to miracles, because miracles in the Christian faith are not something that's just like a little add-on piece, right? The Christian faith, if, we li- if you listen to our Scripture reading this morning, depends on the validity of miracles, specifically the resurrection. Right? This isn't a take-it-or-leave-it piece of Christianity. There is an essential piece of that miracles are plausible, that they are real, that is necessary for understanding the Christian faith. See, educated and modern people will, will look at this, this topic of miracles and, and, and the Bible's account of it, and they say, well, there's some sort of, there has to be some sort of rational scientific explanation for these miracles, right? They, they would blame it on the uneducated, the misinformed nature of the people who recorded it, right? They say, well, uh, this could have happened because this, this, and this, so therefore this guy who wrote it down, he's kind of an idiot. Um, and so they sort of work their way around it that way. And I think when, when it comes to miracles, it's very typical for us to remain skeptical. I think that's part of our nature, right? When something happens outside of the explanation of the natural world, it causes us to scratch our head a little bit. We were at, my wife and I were at dinner with our neighbors um, on Monday night, and, and they're part of a, a very uh, Pentecostal church, a very uh, charismatic church. And one of the things that they do every week is they pray for people, and they've seen miracles happen where people are healed on the spot. And as they're telling us, look, I'm a pastor I believe in the validity of miracles. And as they're telling this to me, I'm like, these guys are crazy. What are they talking about? Look, so I feel like there is definitely a piece of us that regardless of, of what it is, whenever a miracle gets thrown out, there's part of us that's a little skeptical of it. And that's normal. So the argument here that people put forward is that the Bible is unreliable. Because of miracles. This is what Thomas Jefferson did, right? One of our founding fathers. He liked the ethics of the Christian faith. He liked what what the Bible had to say about being a good person and all of that stuff. But he did not like any mention of the supernatural, anything of the miracles. And so what he did, he took his Bible. And whenever he saw something that resembled supernatural, he would cut it out, block it out, until all he had was left was this book of moralistic how to be a good person. There's something about uh, 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 
the modern mind that looks at the Bible and says, because miracles are in it, it needs to be discounted. But the premise between, beneath this that has to be addressed is that science cannot, is not, science is not equipped to prove if miracles exist or don't exist. Keller argues this logic itself to, to say the argument that the Bible is unreliable because it has miracles in it, therefore the premise saying that science cannot prove anything as miracles. Keller says that this logic itself is a leap of faith. I've got another quote for you. He says that it's one thing to say that science is only equipped to test for natural causes and cannot speak to any others. It is quite another to insist that science proves that no other cause could possibly exist. He goes on, that is because natural causes are the only kind that scientific methodology can address. It is another thing to insist that science has proven there can't be an other kind. It is therefore a philosophical presupposition and not a scientific finding. So what he's saying here is that science is incapable of assessing the existence of the supernatural, right? Science has parameters within the natural world. So therefore, it can only speak to natural things, just like a thermometer. Think of a thermometer for a moment. A thermometer can only explain the real temperature of a room, right? As a way of raising and lowering, depending on what the room actually is. But the thermometer cannot explain humidity, which is the felt temperature of the room. Right? When the humidity goes up, it feels hotter. As temperature goes up. See, a thermometer is only capable of explaining what's actual when hu- uh, uh, to explain the humidity. We need a hydro- hygrometer. The same is true of science. But science is only limited to its natural realm. There are many things that cannot be proved through scientific method, right? Laws of logic, math, ethics. Uh, we cannot prove scientifically that we're not trapped in some sort of matrix. Similar, similar, similar <laughs> to the same degree, it is possible... It is impossible, to the same degree, it is impossible for science to explain and thus disprove miracles, God, angels, and demons because those exist in a supernatural way. So to prove miracles do or don't exist is impossible. In order to do that, you have to prove beyond a doubt that God doesn't exist and going back to the uh, Kalam, cosmological argument, you can't do that logically. Now, as I'm kind of bringing things to a close here, I don't know how I'm doing for time, but when, when science is turned to an all-encompassing theory explaining absolutely everything that we believe, feel, and do, we have moved out of the boundaries of science and we have moved into philosophy. See, this is what happens when you take all, excuse me, all three arguments and extend them to its fullest degree. And what this is, it's called naturalism. 
Naturalism is a philosophical viewpoint that everything has a natural explanation and that there is no supernatural existence in the world or universe. Richard Dawkins says it like this. He says, to be scientific, we must embrace physicalist naturalism, that the ultimate explanation of everything must lie in particle physics, string theory, or whatever purely existential laws govern the elements of which the materials, material world is composed. That's his stance. Now, Alvin Plantinga, he argues against this. He says, to just limit ourselves to the natural world is like the drunk man who insists on looking for his lost keys underneath a streetlight because that's the place where the light is brightest. He says you're limiting yourself to a sphere which you can understand in natural ways where the light is brightest, but what's to say that something doesn't uh, exist beyond that streetlight? And what Dawkins does and what many other um, new atheist leading thinkers do is they make it sound like all science is behind them, and that is not true. Many, many, many scientists, many atheists disagree with these men that push science as a worldview. Thomas Nagel, who's an atheist philosopher, highly doubts that science can exhaustively explain all of life as we know. He says, I've got a quote up here, the reductionist project, this is what he considers to be naturalism, usually tries to reclaim some of the originally excluded aspects of the world by analyzing them in a physical, that is, behavioral or neurophysiological terms, but it denies reality to what cannot be so reduced. I believe the project is doomed that conscious experience, thought, value, and so forth are not illusions, even though they cannot be identified with physical facts. Stephen Jay Gould, who's also an atheist, a Harvard scientist, evolutionist, disagrees as well. He does it a little more brashly, maybe. He says, either half of my colleagues, referring to those who are in the naturalist camp, are enormously stupid, and these aren't my words, or else the science of Darwinism is fully capable with conventional religious belief and equally compatible with atheism. He's saying that there's a, a line, there's a, a dichotomy that's being made that doesn't actually need to be made based upon scientific discovery. Now what new atheism, what naturalism claims is exclusive rights to science, and they create a belief system, which they ironically don't like to call a belief system, right? Because whenever you see a dialogue or a debate, they will refuse that they're actually believing in something. But they create an alternate belief system. Now, this is where many start to go wrong by making these exclusive claims that we're either pro-science or pro-faith, but you cannot be both. Now, Francis Collins... He might be a name that you've heard of before. He's, he was um, the, the head, the lead of the Human Genome Project. Um, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant scientist. Studied DNA um, extensively. Contributed so much to science. And, and when he began his career as a scientist, he was an atheist. But the more he dove into DNA, the more he dove into his scientific studies, he came to realize that there had to be an uncreated creator. And so through his studies of science, his logical inquiries, he came to the faith, or he came to a point where he said, there must be a God. Tell me what the God, you know, like, who is that God? What's that look like? And he was eventually 
converted to Christianity. Now, a majority of scientists, there's a research, uh, a poll that was done, I think, in 2013, 2014. It says the majority of scientists consider themselves deeply or moderately religious. And and there's a trend going on right now that that number of religious people in the scientific community is on the uptick. So what we're seeing is faith and science are coming together. They are not opponents, as perhaps has been suggested, but they are complementary because both of which help us to see and understand God better. And ultimately, it leads us to glorify him. Because the truth of God's created world will not ever contradict the truth of God's written word. Truth cannot contradict truth. So when silence is rightly viewed, science is this. Science is the study of God's creation with a desire to learn, to serve the good of others, and to enjoy the world. See, that's what science was meant for. But things sort of turn sour. So I want to take you to, just really quickly, and I promise I'm closing. I don't know where my time is, but... Romans 1, Romans 1, verse 18. And here we're going to see, because of spiritual misconduct, because of sin, our view of science has flipped. Where it was once used for good, for understanding who God is and what he's like, science flipped to be used against God. This is how Paul talks about it. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. I'm in uh, Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness before men, who by their unrighteousness suppresses the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Listen here. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they know God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up into the lusts of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Here's the reality, friends. No amount of scientific knowledge can save us from our heart rebellion, from our spiritual misconduct toward God that we cannot explain ourselves out of this predicament. And just like there are consequences for scientific misconduct, there are consequences for cosmic misconduct, specifically sin. Science world, if you are caught um, in scientific misconduct, you'll be removed from the community, you'll be disbarred, you'll probably be sued. It won't go well for you. But here's the thing, in the cosmic, when you cosmic misconduct, we are removed from God's presence. We are separated from him, which is spiritual death. The stakes are much higher. 
See, here's the thing. The science community itself, it's very brutal, very cutthroat, um, very little grace. And so if you are guilty of scientific misconduct, it's highly unlikely that you would ever make your way back into the community. Right? So what happens? You move on. You go to a new career. You leave science and you pursue something else. That's what many do. But perhaps you want to stick with science. It takes years and years of rebuilding your reputation. And just maybe you might make a comeback. Just enough to get your toe in the door. You won't be restored completely because everyone will always be a little bit leery of you, right? That one time you made a big mistake, maybe you'll get your toe in the door. See, but with, with God, when it comes to cosmic misconduct, there is no such thing as making a comeback by our own efforts. Right? The Bible calls that moralism. There's no way to work yourself toward heaven and make yourself right with God. So therefore, your only options are to either walk away from him, which is to continue in spiritual death, to remain separated from him, or to make a comeback by clinging to Christ by faith. This is what 1 Corinthians 15 is saying. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the chapter, it says that the spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused, immensely powerful God entered the world. That Jesus, the God-man, came and he lived a perfect life and then died a sinner's death in accordance with the scriptures. And then after his death, he was buried. And then on the third day, by God's power, by God's infinite power, which started the universe, God raised him from the dead. And by his resurrection, we know this, that your punishment for spiritual misconduct, for cosmic treason, for your sin was absorbed by Jesus. The price was paid in full. He took it himself and rose victorious over the grave. And so as you put your faith in Jesus, it is by that faith you are restored to God. It is where you go from death to everlasting, abundant life. Now, if you go to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, it says, if, if, Christ, if, if in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. He's saying if, if the resurrection isn't true, if, if, if we're just making this up and, and rolling with it, then we ought to be pitied the most because there is no hope beyond this life. But we can have confidence, not only because of reason and logic, but because of the host of witnesses in Scripture and through the ages that testify to the truth of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 22. It says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Friends, Christianity is not a call to close your eyes and ignore science and move into blind faith. No. 
Christianity is the effect of God opening your eyes to see more fully what is in front of you and how it all points to him. To be a Christian is to see the world rightly. He's not here today, so I can use this as an example. Brother Adam, uh, he's a chemist. When I had a conversation with him last week, I was asking him, going through school at, at Iowa State, in the science community, what was it like to be a Christian? Um, and if he ever felt like his Christian faith was ever threatened by scientific discovery in that realm. And he goes, no way. No, because every time that I looked under a microscope, every time I looked at, 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 at the microscopic lens and I saw chemical reactions happening, I saw biology you know, in its form, I go, how could this not have been created by somebody? Every time I look up to the stars, the fingerprints of God. See, this is what science is meant to do. Science is meant for us to examine what's before us. Take a look at it deep and deep, long and hard, and see that God's fingerprints are on it. Christianity is not a call to ignore science, push it to the side. It's, it's a call to embrace both what we see and what we don't see yet and hold them together in faith. One of the best things is that we don't have to look in a microscope. We don't have to look in a telescope to find God. We open our Bibles. We find God becoming flesh. We see the account of the infinite creator God subjecting himself to the natural world to redeem sinners like us. This is what we look to. This is what our hope is in. This is where our confidence lies. And scientific discovery will not debunk that hope we have. We can hold both together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. In our opening song, we sing, Holy, holy, holy God, there is no one like you. And that is true. We believe that to be true. That you are the unmoved mover. You are the uncaused causer. You are the uncreated creator. And in your infinite wisdom, you have designed a universe that is so complex, so intricate, that, that, that if our, our world were tilted even a half a degree, it would be uninhabitable. But you have designed this world where humans can flourish that we can enjoy your creation, that we can study it, and as we study it, we learn more about you and what you're like. And so I pray, Father, that as Christians this morning, you'd help us to not be afraid of scientific discovery, to hold both together and let our scripture interpret what we discover scientifically and what we discover scientifically also help us to interpret scripture rightly and know that truth cannot contradict truth. Father, I pray for those who who are skeptical, who have strong doubts in this room. I pray, Father, that you would would soften their hearts to believe, not in a way that that causes us to detach our minds, but in a way that allows our intellect to dive deeper into these topics. But in doing so, we don't grow cold and hard toward you, that we grow warm with affections for you because 
who are you to be mindful of us? So, Father, we thank you for what you've done, your created world. We thank you that you've allowed us brains to, to think critically, to think logically and rationally and come to some of the conclusions that we could come to. And Father, we want our studies, we want what, our know, what we know, our knowledge to glorify you. Because if it, if it isn't knowledge that, that helps us glorify and rejoice in you, it is useless knowledge. And so help us put our, our intellect and our, our minds to work this morning as we finish up, as we come to the Lord's table and we rejoice in, in the sacrifice of your son putting on flesh, defeating the limits of the natural and supernatural world so that we could be eternally happy in you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.